Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the City of Hamilton is looking at selling First Ontario Centre, First Ontario Concert Hall, and the Hamilton Convention Centre. Also, the president of the Canadian Steel Producers Association joined us to discuss the federal decision to abandon trade safeguards. And Hamilton's public school board is laying off 99 teachers due to provincial funding cuts. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The city, and city council for that matter, is uh, kicking around the idea of trying to sell off the three entertainment facilities that we have been talking about low these many years. That being First Ontario Centre, a.k.a. Cops Coliseum, First Ontario Concert Hall, which we knew as Hamilton Place, and of course the Convention Centre. Uh, well, we'll get into the validity of whether or not that's a good idea in a couple of seconds. As a matter of fact, I want to bring uh, John Best into the conversation, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, John, as always, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. Not surprising that they'd be kicking around this idea, but is this too little too late? Well, it's never too late to uh, solve a problem that isn't going to solve itself, Bill. Um, I mean, clearly these facilities are underperforming. Uh, you know, the arena particularly, it, it simply uh, is is falling apart. And I think uh, some of the reports suggest it needs 30-odd million in sort of short-term repairs and 68 million long term so you know that's not viable there's no there's no funding plan in place with the city uh, to do any of that um, the convention center really was a problem from day one in the sense that it probably never was big enough to uh, you know to attract the kind of conventions that people dreamed of getting and of course we also back in those days back in the 80s when, the, when it was being built um, you know, we had a mismatch in terms of we didn't have hotel rooms, so mm. that was another problem. So we always seem to be a little bit out of sync with these things. We we built the arena to get an NHL team. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, the convention center, you know, suffered for years because we simply couldn't uh, house uh, delegates. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the, the one area I'd be a little worried about is... Uh, the concert hall is really a Hamilton jewel that was built with Hamilton money, and I'd be very nervous about lumping it in with the other two facilities. I, I still think there might be a solution there that doesn't involve uh, uh, losing the public ownership of it, but that's just my personal opinion. No, I don't disagree. As a matter of fact, I would think of the three of them. That one is salvageable. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, It can still be a viable entity, and it's still a place for the arts. I mean, we, we don't have too many facilities like that. But my right. concern here, John, is even if they decide to put the for sale sign up, say even on the other two facilities, who who in their right mind is going to buy something like that? As you mentioned, uh, $68 million is uh, is what they said just to bring uh, the uh, the arena up to, uh, not even up to today's standards. That's really, you know, just to try to make it doable and, and maybe get rid of some of the health and safety issues and some of the things that are falling apart. But that's akin to putting lipstick on a pig, isn't it? I mean, because the thing is just not going to be a viable entity for anybody. No, it's not viable, and, and uh, you know, uh, we have a situation where the Hamilton Bulldogs are in desperate need of a new uh, facility. Uh, they're, uh, you know, when you think about what they've been through, what Michael Andlauer and his, his people have been through in this city, it's, it's really shocking in the sense that he's the only person that has consistently put people into that building. I was just doing a rough calculation. You know, he had 19 years of an AHL franchise, and now he's into about his fourth year with uh, with the OHL, so you know it's, we're approaching 25 years of of him being essentially the main tenant 
of that building. So, you know, at 40 games a year, that's a thousand events that that he's responsible for. And if you did a rough estimate of say 3,000 per game, he's put three million people into that building. And um, you know, like Rodney Dangerfield, I don't get the sense he gets any respect at all. Well, because and, and because on top of all that, I mean, that's just a guy that, that you know he's put his money where his mouth is. I mean, even some of the capital improvements that have been made to that arena came out of his pocket. Absolutely, he's put money in there, and he's willing. Uh, he needs to get out of there. I mean, that's the bottom line because that that location is just not working uh, as a hockey venue, and the size of the building, of course, we well know that it's just way out of line for uh, for junior hockey. Uh, he wa- everybody knows he wants to go to the mountain where, incidentally, I mean, they've done all kinds of audience surveys, and, and their audience surveys show that the vast majority of their regular attendees come from the south part of the city, uh, which is the mountain. So, you know, there's things the city could do uh, to help him with that. And uh, Yeah, but I don't get the sense that there's anybody on city council that's inclined to do that. Well, it's uh, it's there's a lot of balls in the air, and and I mean there's there's a plan that's that that's uh, trying to come together, and it and it involves kind of a three-way deal where um, where uh, the the Bulldogs they've been looking. At, let's make no secret. I think we know that they've been looking at McQuiston Park as a possible place to build a five or six thousand seat arena. Right across the uh, link from that is uh, Cadillac Fairview's Lime Ridge Mall, and we. We know the mall business is running into challenges, and you know Cadillac Fairview is Hamilton's biggest taxpayer right now. But they won't be if uh, there continues to be attrition in the mall business. So there's kind of a thought: is, is there some way that they could put an arena up there, maybe a walking bridge across the link, uh, so there'd be traffic between it and and Cadillac Fairview? And then the third piece of the puzzle would be: could Cadillac Fairview get rezoned? So they could put some condos on on that very large piece of land, and you know, so they're they're trying to come up with a solution. But uh, anything that that sort of delays a decision around Cops Coliseum, I'm sorry, uh, First Ontario Place, I think is it just gets in the way of you know the the private sector uh, is is ready to try to do something, but they need a bit of certainty and the. To me, I think the city needs to make a, a priority not only of disposing of these facilities, however that works out, but also facilitating this other piece uh, of um, what are we doing about uh, facilities on the mountain? What are we doing about Cadillac Fairview, which is the biggest taxpayer in the city? Uh, what are we doing to shore them up? It's a bigger piece of a puzzle than what to do with a dilapidated arena. Yet, with all of that, and, and uh, we've talked to Michael about this, and Michael Landlord, that is, and uh, it, it makes all kinds of sense uh, it, from uh, many, many standpoints. But it seems to me, and, and I'm getting the impression from the reporting I got, I, I got word of this on Saturday when we were at the soccer game at Tim Horton Field. Some, uh, one of my sources, like, who shall remain confidential, said that this was coming down this week. And I, and I said, why the, the infatuation with the downtown core? And I, I get that to a point, okay, because there's been growth down there and the LRTs going there, et cetera. But councillors are talking about having a what they call an entertainment district, and I guess what they're trying to do is is replicate maybe what Ottawa did in their Lansdowne area, where they put the stadium and a number of commercial enterprises and condos and things of that nature. But but that was that's an apples and oranges comparison. It's a different end of town. There's a huge football stadium there. We have a guaranteed tenant. 
I'm not so sure Michael Andelar wants to stick around. I mean, I, I, he hasn't told me that, but I know he's getting awfully frustrated. And I don't know that even if there's a consortium that says, yeah, we, we're kind of interested in this, um, it, it, maybe maybe for condos, maybe for commercial development on that big piece of land, but is anybody really interested in putting another arena down there and a convention center, which would have to be huge, by the way, to accommodate the kind of business that we expect to get from it? Well, definitely not an arena. Maybe maybe a, a, a convention center because we do now have a, a good stock of hotels uh, in the in the city. But uh, definitely not an arena, Bill. And and you know, it's not like Michael Andlauer has no options. I mean, he can go to Burlington. He's quite frankly, in his frustration, he's been to Burlington and and uh, got a very warm reception. So you know, it's not just a question of whether he goes to the mountain or whether he stays there. Uh, he can go somewhere else where where maybe the uh, the climate is a little more flexible and and a little more welcoming. And therein lies the problem. Yeah, I, I think I think if they're going to go through with this, I think there's a couple of realities that City Council is going to have to face, given the condition of of the arena and given the 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 the, the, the way that, as you mentioned, the convention center has been problematic since they opened the doors on that thing. I don't know that anybody's going to offer them more than a buck for that stuff. They may be interested in the land, but I don't think anybody's interested in those buildings. Well, even if they gave it away, uh, they'd be in better shape than they are now. I was just looking at the uh, city capital budget, and even though they don't have any money budgeted to, for for the repairs uh, at, at COPS, or, although I did hear more recently that they are going to try to tackle that escalator, my advice would be don't spend a nickel uh, on that place uh, until we sort out um, what we could possibly do with the, with the bulldogs, and you know the idea that people may see it as a subtraction from downtown, but if the growth of this city is is to the south, and and there's uh, you know uh, population growth in the lower city is stagnant, and it's not likely to grow. I mean, with high rise condos, it might be some marginal growth. The real growth is to the south, and why shouldn't we? Here, here we got an opportunity. We got a man that's willing to put up his own dough. He's going to need money from the city, but he's going to put up a big chunk of his own dough to to build a, a facility on the mountain that not only will house his foot, his hockey team, but will you know put an entertainment venue in the city that uh, that we don't have right now. Like there's a whole uh, category of entertainment that that plays these five and six thousand seat arenas that are going to London and Kitchener. We we don't get a sniff of that. Uh, because um, you know we we we're not right sized for those kind of uh, entertainers. Plus, there there could be uh, you know a, a, a hockey arena with a with a team like the Bulldogs does forty dates a year and some practices. Um, there's all kinds of opportunity maybe for public access. So it, it would be a community asset. By the way, just to give some historical perspective on this, uh, I can recall. Uh, just off the top of my head, at least one other instance when City Council would decide or it, was, it was at least kicking around the idea of, of trying to sell the arena, and it was in the late 1990s. Uh, I think it was actually before amalgamation, uh, and they kind of put out a request for interest in this, and they got zero zero replies from anybody. Mm-hmm. Now I know that was then, and this is now. I get that, and and the downtown is a lot more lively than it was, and we've seen some great investment from a, a handful of people. Uh, on the downtown, but I'm not so sure that there's a whole lot of incitement. I mean, the only people we even hear of now is this this local consortium that's been kicking around and saying we'll do the reports, and that includes the, you know the Carbons Group and and Fengate and and Leuna to a certain extent. And I'm not sure who all the other part 
partners are in this situation. But they, of course, are not in the arena business. Uh, they are in the in the residential and condo and commercial business. So I'm not even so sure if they're interested in, in jumping in and, and trying to do something with an arena project. Well, uh, we we know that you lose money when you build an arena. So, uh, you know, you start with that proposition and then say, why would you do it? Uh, I mean, I think the the answer, certainly for the arena, is is that it be redeveloped uh, as as uh, at this point I would say condos because we we still got a lot of office space that that hasn't been taken up yet. But it, it seems to me that if you want to revitalize that corner, and by the way, after dark, uh, Bay and York is not a great place to be, which is another reason why the the hockey team. Uh, is wanting to get out of there. I mean, it, it, you know, we can talk about James Street North and the vibrancy and all of that, and, it, and it's certainly there. But you, you go down to uh, Bay Street and, and York, and it's not a great place to be after dark. That's the reality of it. And um, it's, you know, it, it, I think if you get people living down there, and that's part of the reason, because if you look at the four corners of that intersection, there's absolutely nothing. There, there's a men's shelter. But uh, you got a school and you got a, a, a federal building, so to get some actual people living down there, I think would would be a good thing for that corner. Well, and and that seems to be the problem. And and I know that there's all kinds of different facets that we could go down here and different roads. Uh, there was discussion, as you can recall, John, even back when they built the arena way back when. Uh, that maybe that wasn't the best location for it. It just seemed as if the, they wanted to seemingly move the development that was happening back in those days uh, you know, west of the downtown core. And I'm not quite sure what the rationale was for that, but you've seen a couple of different buildings down there, and I guess they expected everything to grow up around it, and that's just not going to happen. Well, not not without uh, residential. Now, mind you, back in the 80s, uh, the idea of condos down there would have been too far-fetched. But you know, uh, I, I think the history on that is simply that it was the final piece of a, a really a 1960s and 70s vision of, you know, ripping up York Boulevard, getting the slums out of there. It was kind of a slum clearance uh, kind of project. And, and so the final piece of the puzzle was to put an arena on that last piece of land uh, that, that sort of formed that, you know, Jackson Square complex. And so, you know, it was a concept that was probably running out of gas uh, even at that point. And, and of course, uh, you know, the, the NHL situation was so much more fluid in those days. There, there actually was a chance of getting a team then. Uh, now, of course, it, you know, without spending probably a quarter of a billion dollars, I mean, it's just not going to happen. Well, and, and we the, the politics of that, I mean, I think are, are clear to just about everybody right now. Uh, as long as Buffalo and and, and Toronto have franchises, they're not going to stick a team here. That that's that's the bottom line. So, but you do have to have an anchor tenant, and and Michael Andlar is the guy right now, and I don't see too many other options for them at this stage. So, no, uh, we got about sixty seconds other, left. Yeah. How are they going to fix this? Well, I I think one of the things they could do is is approach this whole. Um, project that Andlauer wants to work on, uh, the Cadillac Fairview. I mean, it's great to be obsessing about downtown, but your biggest taxpayer has got some issues, and he'd like them to be addressed. And uh, Mr. Andlauer is part of the puzzle. I put some urgency on dealing with that whole business. Uh, as far as the real estate deal, whether you tear down the arena or not, that's something that can kind of take care of itself. I, I wouldn't spend any more money on repairs. And uh, wouldn't spend a lot of money on on further studies other than maybe getting Barnicky or somebody in to 
commercial realtor to take a look at the thing and, and give them some advice. Well, we'll find out how council's going to handle this uh, sooner than later, I guess. John, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we talked with Hamilton East Stony Creek MPP, or MP, rather, Bob Bertina, who is also the chair, of course, of the co-chair, actually, of the Canadian All-Party Steel Caucus up in Ottawa. And uh, he was trying to explain exactly why the federal government has uh, lifted some safeguards that have been in place for the last little while for the steel industry, uh, suggesting that it was a very complex situation. Well, a number of people in the industry are very concerned about this and very worried about uh, being exposed to, well, possibly of uh, things like dumping of steel and a number of other things that could happen here, which is not going to be very healthy for the industry. So we wanted to get that perspective just to give you a full picture as to what's going on. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Catherine Cobden, who is the president of the Canadian Steel Producers Association, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Catherine, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. Well, we'll we heard from the, the this representative from Bob Bertino yesterday about this. Give us your side on this. Uh, and, and maybe if you could back up just a little bit, uh, for those that maybe didn't hear the interview yesterday, about what safeguards were in place and why they were there and, and how effective they were for your industry. Yeah, so we had um, safeguards in place for seven different and important steel products that are produced by Canadian steel companies across the country. And the purpose of the safeguard is to protect, really to protect the domestic market from surge of imports. So what that means is um, importers can supply the Canadian marketplace, but at a level that's consistent with what they've been doing historically. And given the situation in the world, like the, the uh, 232 tariffs in the United States, uh, safeguard measures in many other countries, we are extremely concerned about diversion of steel products to our country. Uh, now that those safeguards are lifted, uh, we think that that's an inevitable uh, outcome. So, this, and, and by the way, we should also mention that uh, of the, 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 the safeguards that are left uh, there, uh, the two Hamilton steelmakers, actually Middle DeFasco and, of course, Delco, uh, are pretty much exposed, as are a lot of other factories around the, the country. Yes, yes. In fact, you know, we really had hoped that all seven would be put in place. We advocated and advised the government strongly that that was the case uh, because all of these products need to be protected. You know, we're obviously, it's great that two were, but that represents a very small amount of the overall uh, steel production that we are concerned with. Um, so, you know, we must uh, figure out a new path now that the safeguards have lapsed as of Sunday. Um, so we've been working with the government. We've provided other ideas and suggestions on legal pathways that they could put those, you know, the same sort of um, measures in place to stabilize the market. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, now launching a 30-day or involved in the government is launching a 30-day intensive consultation, and we really hope that they hear our views. Catherine, this government decision, of course, was based on a, a ruling that came down from the Canadian International Trade Tribunal uh, that basically said, that, as you've already alluded, that uh, that five of these safeguards didn't need to be in place anymore, that they were they are no longer necessary. Did you have any input into that decision? Well, certainly our companies provided evidence, and we felt the evidence identified strongly that all seven should be in place. So we were a bit, uh, let's say, shocked and surprised by the CITT's ruling. 
Furthermore, I want to point out that Canada wasn't alone in attempting, in, in putting safeguards in place. And the fact that we didn't make them final, it makes us actually now alone on the global stage. What I mean by that is Europe, Turkey, Egypt, Mexico, uh, the list goes on and on of countries throughout the world that have put safeguards and safeguard-like measures in place. So what we're really wondering is why can't, why hasn't Canada and why aren't we moving forward? Um, this is, you know, the, the global overcapacity is a huge problem. The U.S. tariffs are a huge problem. And we have to respond to protect our Canadian steel workers. There's another element, too, that just to put this in perspective, I guess, is uh, the industry is on, on pretty tentative ground. I mean, the, the steel industry, I'm talking globally right now. I mean, there was a period of time, uh, I guess, six, seven years ago, where a lot of people were worried about the future of it in a lot of countries now. Uh, and it seems to have gone pretty much the other side now at this point, Catherine, where I'm being told now that the, uh, on a global scale now, we're, they're, they're producing too much steel and, and uh, they got to find a place for it. That's right. So there's about over 30 times the entire Canadian production capacity is global surplus. So in other words, there are 450 million tons of steel out there that do not have a home. So with the closure of the European market and, of course, the American market, these are very big markets that are no longer available to uh, those uh, foreign steel producers. So without safeguards, they're going to come to Canada. And if that happens, the domestic market collapses and we lose jobs and we have already begun that unfortunate uh, situation and we see investments freeze, which has already started to happen as well. Plus, also, you, you talked about pricing. I mean, because uh, I know there's going to be some free traders that are going to say, well, what's the big deal? That's what free markets happen, uh, and it occurs all the time, and, you know, it's only the strong survive. I mean, you've heard all these cliches. But, but what does that do to the industry, and what does it do? Uh, maybe you might also want to talk about the quality of steel that could be coming in from some of these foreign markets. Yeah, so basically, um, you know, on the concept of free trade, uh, you know, I'd like to point out that we have 232 tariffs in place on the Canadian steel industry by our one of our longest standing trading partners for which we actually thought we had a free trade agreement. So my point is uh, that, you know, the concept of free trade is fantastic, but it's not being practiced in reality in 2019. So we do need to protect uh, our Canadian domestic market. And without these types of measures and with this existing global overcapacity, the impact will be job losses and the you know investments going elsewhere, not coming to Canada. So this is a pretty you know critical uh, development from our perspective and must be addressed. You know, as I looked at this yesterday, and and, and I I, list, I listened to, to MP Pergino about his decision and or his explanation of the federal government decision, it, it it struck me that you know the government was in town just a couple of weeks ago, uh, making huge financial investments in ArcelorMittal, Defasco, and Stelco, and of course Algoma, uh, and 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 obviously you know saying we've got your back on this whole thing, and to simply acquiesce to to the tribunal's decision on this uh, it seems a little incongruous to me. So I have to point out that since the 232 tariffs have gone in place, the Canadian industry has, you know, been affected by a, probably by about a billion dollars, if not more by now. These uh, tariffs came in place almost a year ago. So the impact is significant. I think your listeners um, will understand with that type of situation in place, with the uh, importer situation in place, the, the cheap foreign steel that I've been describing, 
you know, we really are uh, heading into a crisis in the Canadian steel industry. So I'm really glad you, you talked to Bob Bertina. He is uh, certainly a strong, you know, uh, voice in Ottawa as the, as the co-chair of the Canadian Steel Caucus. Um, we need to engage all of our all of our champions and all of our MPs and all of our ministers uh, in this problem. So where where do you go from here? I mean, I, I, I understand that, you know, Bob Bertin is very sensitive to this, obviously. He worked in the steel mills when he was younger, yep. uh, so he knows what of he speaks and, of course, represents those areas. But at the yep. same time, uh, you know, the federal government's going to have to step up here just a little bit. I mean, I know that there was one characterization when this announcement was made that, uh, that you know, there are literally steamships heading towards Canada right now with all kinds of steel on them. And, and, I, and at first that was being dismissed as fear-mongering, but others saying, no, that's the reality. As soon as they heard this was happening uh we're like a magnet now for all this excess steel you bet and you know what we are providing evidence to the federal government on an ongoing basis and they have launched this 30-day intensive consultation and we will continue to give our evidence there to demonstrate that this is an this is a real problem this is not chicken little sky is falling this is a real issue is, that must be addressed. But, in, in, you know, is this going to be too little too late? I mean, once they open the door and this starts, how do you stop it? Well, I, you know, this is the issue. We've, get, we've offered them um, options that they can, uh, you know, should they choose to. There are legal pathways to address this and to put, you know, safeguard. Now we have, now we can't, we no longer have the safeguard tool at our disposal uh, with them lapsing on Sunday, but we do see other measures that could be put in place that would help the situation. But this isn't going to happen without, you know, sort of political will. This is this isn't. These are big steps that need to be taken, and decisions that need to be taken by the federal government to make those things happen. So this is why, you know, the engagement of of, uh, of Mr. Bertina and and others is so critical in in making sure that Ottawa understands that they must make these decisions for steel workers. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the idea of the U.S. tariffs because that's still very much in play. I know, uh, you know, we've had some discussion and some rumors over the last couple of months. Uh, Mr. McNaught and, of course, the Canadian ambassador of the state said oh, they'll be lifted soon. Well, that was about six, seven weeks ago. Uh, and then he was just quoted last week as saying, well, I guess that's not going to happen anytime soon after all. Sorry about that, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't <laughs> help you guys at all. But, but we were told initially, as, as you know, Catherine, that when the tariffs first went in place, we were surprised to see places like Stelco and ArcelorMittal de Fasco and others actually still doing quite well. But the, the reality here is that was our, those were offers and, and, and orders that were put in before the tariffs went in place. That bubble's going to burst pretty soon, and, and it's almost like a double whammy here. You're facing that, plus now the, the, re- the release of these sanctions and, and these uh, safeguards that are put in place. You have to wonder about the long-term viability of a lot of these factories. So what happens is you, you've outlined this very well, that we've, we are, you know, this is why I, I'm describing this as we're entering into a crisis phase in the industry and we need the government to hear us. Um, so yes, when the tariffs first came in, I think we all, you know, had understood that, uh, that around certain USMCA, COSMA activities, that, the, that those tariffs wouldn't last long. Um, they're still around 11 months later, and this is a, a real problem. So that drives that you know we need to retool the industry, um, and uh, we need and we need to protect the domestic market, and then of course we need to keep pushing uh, you know for the U.S. to get rid of those tariffs for Canadian suppliers. We're long-standing trade partners with the U.S. It's really unconscionable that we still have these tariffs in place on our on our products. Was this in any way? decided upon uh, on the basis that they thought the tariffs were going to go away and that you were strong enough to be able to withstand this? 
uh, which decision? Uh, the, the, to the remove the, to remove the safeguard. Yeah. Well, I I would be I. I I can't. I don't know uh, why they chose to make this unfortunate decision. All I can tell you, Bill, is we're working very hard to change their perspective and have them appreciate the important, you know, what the the problem and the position this puts the Canadian steel industry in. The risks to jobs, you know, uh, some of us, some of our um, estimates are 6,000 jobs will be lost related to this uh, initiative alone, and 1.1 billion dollars of investments. Uh, are likely to be frozen. So this is a critical issue. One of the things I'm disappointed by here, though, is, uh, you know, and you talked about the consultation period, and, and, and Bob Bertino mentioned that to us yesterday, too, uh, and that's all well and good, but shouldn't this have happened before they actually came down with their decision? Yeah, I would I mean, agree. this is this is kind of leaving you guys out there, you know, on the tightrope without a net under, below you here. Uh, they knew this was probably going to happen, uh, yet, you know, why wait until after the fact and say, okay, now let's talk about how we can fix this? The problem with delay is the problem you mentioned before. Those ships are on their way to Canada, and now that there's been a delay in the process and in that they weren't made final, uh, we're sure those imports are coming. And they will land on Canadian shores and they will have an impact. So, you know, what we are working diligently towards is helping the government make the right decision on behalf of Canadian steel jobs and put those, you know, put the next best option to safeguards in place to control and manage the market long longer term. From what you've and, been, sorry, yeah. Catherine, go ahead. No, no, that's fine. I was no, just, just going to ask you, from the discussions you've had already, and, and the, your, your position, of course, is not unfamiliar to the federal government at this stage, are you confident that you're going to find some, some middle ground here that's, that's going to accommodate the industry? I'm extremely hopeful that our government will understand. You know, we're up to 700 job losses already. Um, I think they will... They have to pay attention to the evidence here and act. And so all I can say is we'll be doing everything in our power to ensure that they understand and that we communicate clearly and demonstrate clearly that this is a, a big problem for the steel sector. Well, here's ho- here's hoping that, that that hopeful situation turns into a confident situation, and I don't think we're there yet, are we? Right. Catherine, thank you so much for spending some time with us and explaining this. It's certainly a story that we're going to continue to follow over the next little while. We we appreciate you doing so. Thank you very much for having me. All right, take care. That's uh, Catherine Bye-bye. Cobden, of course, president of the Canadian Steel Producers Association. Important that you hear that, too. And I understand this is not an us versus them thing. I think it's an unfortunate decision. And, and I understand where Bob Bertina was coming from yesterday, explaining that the government was kind of between a rock and a hard place. They wanted to conf- to you know come on side with the, the same decision that the, the tribunal gave them. And they but I, I wanted to build an appeal process, and I'm wondering if they understand the gravity of the impact that this is going to have on the industry. So here is hoping that uh, that they can come up with some solutions that are going to help the industry. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, uh, the education minister was on our program. Uh, minister Lisa Thompson uh, appeared on the program and uh, told us that in, in reaction to the frustration that a lot of boards of education were talking about and some teachers' unions, and we've been having those discussions on the program for the last couple of weeks, she said that uh, her government, the Doug Ford government, is uh, setting aside an extra $1.6 billion in what they call attrition protection to make sure that, uh, as they said, no teacher would involuntarily lose their job because of the changes that they're making to the education system. Well, uh, let's put that, and I, I mentioned at the time, by the way, that I said that's that's fabulous, but I want to hear from the boards and see how this is going to impact them. Uh, I'm not so sure that they know yet. We told you here on CHML News 
that the Hamilton Board of Education is already sending layoff notices to 99 teachers as a result of these cuts. The Catholic Board, by the way, uh, still has sent out 42 surplus notices as well. So let's get some clarity on this, find out just how this is impacting the boards and the decisions they're going to have to make because of this. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome Alex Johnstone, who is the chairman of the Hamilton Board of Education, back to the program to give us some some light on this. Uh, Alex, thank you for uh, spending some time with us on a very busy day, I'm sure. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, there's a lot of concern and a lot of consternation, I think, from from parents, from students and and teachers, and, and certainly from the boards of education right across the province about this. Uh, and maybe the first question I'll ask you is in response to what the minister told us here last week on the program. Does this $1.6 billion that they have set aside fix your problem? So yesterday was a, a very challenging day. We informed 99 secondary teachers that they were declared redundant. Um, as a result, uh, they will be moving into other pools. Um, so we have a long-term occasional pool as well as a supply list. Um, at this point, um, as we're working through our numbers, we are anticipating around 35 individuals who will retire. Um, however, that falls short of the uh, of the 99. Um, where the minister was um, highlighting the attrition funding, that applies to changes made to secondary school class sizes. Um, at this point, we're still seeking clarification if that funding will also apply to the other areas, um, such as program and funding grants that have been cut um, or reduced, and if that funding can also apply to those areas. I guess one of the questions, and I saw, if you're one of those teachers that got the notice, uh, you, you want to get some clarity on that too. Now, you say you can move them into other pools. What does that do to, uh, how does that affect their income? So it, um, it has an impact on their benefits. It certainly has an impact on their job security, uh, not knowing if they will have a job. It also creates a lot of disruption across the system as we begin to move teachers um, out of our schools. It's equivalent um, of the 99 teachers that have received redundancy um, notices. It's equivalent to just over two high schools worth of staff. And the list goes back to around six years um, of employees who have been working with our board. So as you can see, as we begin to move individuals out of schools where they've been providing programs, where they have had um, meaningful relationships with our students, it creates a lot of disruption across the system. You know, you raise an interesting point here that I'm not hearing much from the ministry about it, and that's the fact that they seem to be looking at some of the th things that are being impacted. As you mentioned, it could be uh, some programs, it could be uh, different classes that are being taught, uh, some other services that are available. Uh, you can't look at these things in isolation. I mean, when they make cuts like this and they decide, okay, this is the way it's going to be and this is the way you're going to be funded now, uh, it impacts all of these things, not just one or two of them. That's correct. It's, um, we're looking locally. Um, um, trustees have been doing everything within our power in order to keep the HWVSB family together. We have also um, been looking at ensuring that uh, where possible, we are moving around funding to ensure a diverse selection of our courses, um, as well as maintaining our special education services. We have a variety of classes that are traditionally lower in class size. Um, so we want to ensure that those classes continue to remain uh, small, 
for health and safety reasons, especially with our tech programs um, and our special education programs. But that's that's an interesting aspect of this as well. I mean, if you're going to maintain those smaller classrooms to maintain that average that the government's and the, the, the ministry is now set, uh, you could have other classrooms that are going to have 40 or maybe 40-plus students in them. Well, that's exactly it. Um, as we continue to work towards the class size average um, that was just increased by the government, um, it's not equal across the system, and that's where uh, we are, where we have some classes that are traditionally kept smaller, as I highlighted for health and safety reasons. I think at the end of the day, um, our school board, um, our board of trustees, is continuing to be uh, a clear and effective voice for our local needs. We will continue to communicate to our parents, to our students, and to our staff on uh, the changes that are resulting locally. We're also uh, can will continue to communicate our local needs to the province and offering our. Um, offering the government to to work with us um, while uh, these changes are being introduced so that they can be done so in a way that um, uh, perhaps uh, is not so negative on on their student body or um, where the some of these changes could be ruled out a lot slower. Alex, yesterday on the program we were talking with uh, Harvey Bischoff, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. I'm sure you're familiar with Harvey. Uh, and he suggested what he was actually hearing now is that in some instances uh, schools are, are going back to the students and saying you're going to have to change uh, the courses that you want to take right now because we're not so sure that these are going to be available for you in September. So they're going to have to have different options all of a sudden. Are you, are you facing something like that? Do you anticipate that could happen in the Hamilton board? We are. Um, locally, our um, guidance counselors are having conversations with um, our students. I did receive an email last night with regards to a parent whose son had been informed that the course he was hoping to take was no longer going to be offered. At this point, we are wanting to track the changes to ensure that um, uh, between what is a typical year um, or a change that's resulting from typical changes where there just hasn't been enough interest versus uh, changes that are resulting from increased class sizes. Um, so that is information that the board will be looking to provide um, to the public and to the ministry as we continue to move forward. Um, but we are having some, uh, uh, I guess, disappointing conversations with our students already. Yeah, because let's face it, this is a huge difference. It's one thing to say, well, sorry, so-and-so, uh, you, we're not going to offer that course because you're the only one that was interested in it, as opposed to coming to them and saying, I know there's a great deal of interest in this and it's a great course, but we just can't afford to do it anymore. We want to be fair, open, and transparent as we as we move through this process uh, with regards to how the changes are impacting our board locally. Uh, well, absolutely, in fairness to the students, but at the same time, you've got to look at the reality of, of what's happening here from the ministry at the same time. And and we're getting mixed messages here, Alex, and we in the public here, I think, are, are getting a little frustrated by this. I'm sure you are, even more so, because these are having a direct impact on you. You know, we had the minister tell us the other day that the funding envelope for uh, for the education ministry has actually increased. Uh, and he sa- she says that's a great thing. But now we find out that the, the, the funding per student uh, for the boards is actually da- going down this year as opposed to where it was last year. Uh, mm-hmm. How does that impact the kind of services and the kind of programs you can deliver if you're getting less money and, and with more with bigger classrooms? It certainly has an impact. Um, at this point, our school 
our board of trustees for continuing to work through our budget process. Our but final budget will be passed in June. Um, we are, um, as we're continuing to go through the information, it has been a challenge. Um, the information or the, our budget details arrived to us a uh, month late than what we traditionally received them. And that meant that our board had to start moving forward, putting together a very conservative budget um, in the hopes that additional monies would be awarded to us. Um, now that we have finally received our budget details, it's, it is going through line by line to determine what um, the local impact was, where we can start to um, add money or where we need to move money um, as according to our local priorities, uh, which is to keep a focus on our students, keep a focus on our special education programming, ensuring diverse course selection. Um, it's been a challenging budget process overall uh, just because of the delay with, with communication. I think that um, uh, as we move forward, though, we will continue to communicate. It's we are concerned. We're concerned locally about the impact that the changes are going to have on our students. In Hamilton in particular, we have a very vulnerable population. We have one of the highest levels of students who access special education services. 26% of our students access special ed. Um, we have uh, one in five students who are coming from impoverished households. And we also have an extremely um, high population of students who have English as a second language. So when you're starting to look at the diverse um, backgrounds that our students are coming from, we are worried about the local impact of the changes that are coming down to us. You know, you use the expression uh, as we go forward. I think a lot of people right now are concerned that uh, that, that we're moving backward here uh, because of some of these reforms that are going on. This uh, this goes beyond challenging right now. This is problematic where you're going to have to make some tough decisions and uh, about a number of different things that you're going to have to do here. Uh, it's 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 beyond challenging, really, to see what's going to happen. And and I, I guess a lot of parents that I'm hearing from anyway, Alex, are very concerned about what this the whole thing is going to look like when, when this all rolls out. Once you get your budget done. Uh, what kind of services you're going to be offering. Uh, the other element to this, too, that I, I couldn't get a straight answer from the minister when she was on the program last week, is what about those support services? What about teaching assistants and the people that are helping out in the classroom? You're going to get larger classrooms. You're having less money. Uh, there's a concern among many of those, and I'm sure you've heard from them now, too, that uh, that they could lose their jobs, and, and, and all of a sudden that's going to put that much more pressure in the classroom. Well, in locally in Hamilton, um for the past three terms, we have been communicating to the ministry that there needs to be a review of special education funding in the province. Um, boards like ourselves, where we have 26% of our students who are accessing special education services, the funding does not match. It is not... Um, Per student, it's based on an assumption of a percentage of students who who would be receiving the funding, but it is not actual numbers. And with that, that is where our board annually tops up our special education budget by two to three million. So we move money from other envelopes in order to support our special education programming. And um, it supports not just the students who are in receipt of the services, but the entire class. Um, we do have concerns, as, as highlighted. It's, there was a real opportunity here for um, this new government to come in and uh, make some changes that would, uh, especially with regards to special education and um, 
Uh, we hope as we continue to move forward and uh, work with this government that uh, we will uh, see some uh, changes that we are advocating for locally. When you talk about special needs and special education, uh, and I've talked to you about this in the past, Alex, the Hamilton Board especially uh, offers some incredible programs that uh, that people that are in that situation can, can access. Uh, and it's not always classroom learning. It can be a, a specialized learning processes and specialized programs. And, and you've done an outstanding job of making sure that you capture those people and give them a chance at, a, at an education at the same time. Are, are those being threatened now because of the, the way that things are being changed from, from Queen's Park? So locally, we are looking to protect our special education services. Um, that is in our most vulnerable students. So that is paramount. Um, and that is where trustees are going to be making some decisions locally uh, with regards to moving money around where we are able to uh, in order to protect um, those services. We will uh, work hard. Our staff are exceptional here at HWDSB, and we will continue to find ways to support our students. Um, we have concerns. Um, um, all that said, we do have concerns, and uh, part of what we do as a board of trustees is we highlight what our local needs are, and we'll continue to communicate that to the province, and locally, we will ensure that we continue to keep parents informed. So we don't know yet. That's the bottom line here, until you can actually get a look at some of these numbers. Well, we, uh, we're continuing to move through the budget process uh, into June. But it is going to be a priority then, those special needs programs. Absolutely. As it has been in the past. So I, I just want to be clear on this so, so our listeners understand exactly what's going on. Uh, that, that You've given up these notices right now, these, these 99 notices to, to 99 different teachers. Uh, you do expect some attrition, some retirements, but uh, you, this, mm -hmm. the number you're throwing around here and, and you guys are working with right now is in the low 30s. So we anticipate 35 individuals okay. will retire. Um, so with, of the 99 redundancies that were declared yesterday, um, we know that 27 are resulting from declining enrollment and two are from school consolidation. The remaining is a result of the various changes that are coming from um, coming from the ministry. And so with that, um, uh, this year... We, we actually would have been in a position to hire six new um, secondary school teachers and funding remained the same. Uh, unfortunately, we're now in a position where we are announcing uh, 99 redundancies. And, and I'm just trying to do the math in, in my head here as you're explaining that to us. And, and by my calculation, and I'm not a math genius at all, uh, that still leaves about 37 teachers vulnerable here that, that may not have worked next year. That's correct. I think um, as we continue to move forward, um, we may receive additional um, retirements. We may receive fewer retirements. Um, but as we continue to to move forward, um, we will uh, be looking for um, we'll, we'll be looking to ensure that staff are offered positions and recalled back as soon as positions become available. But in the meantime, as you mentioned, uh, they, they, there's going to be a, an impact on their benefits. I, I assume there's going to be an impact on the salary, isn't there? So um, these individuals, where opportunities are available, um, they will be offered um, positions in our long-term occasional pool as well as our supply pool. But as you can imagine, there is certainly an impact on on. Uh, 
pay on, um, as well as benefits in most importantly, job security. But will you be able to find, just to go back to that number that we talked about, Alex, will you, and and by the way, I'm not trying to put pressure on you. The pressure is coming from Mm -hmm. Queen's Park, not from you. I mean, you're you're the one that's going to have to fiddle with these numbers and come up with something. Can you find 37 positions within that pool for these people so that they know that they still have a job with the board? So a redundancy means that there is no position available for them in um, the full-time pool. Boy, it's uh, boy, it's, uh, you, you, I know you've been on the board for a while now. I don't think anybody that's on the board right now signed up for this sort of thing. I mean, we anticipated that there's going to be a sense of cooperation between the Ministry of Education and and the boards of education here. And uh, uh, between a rock and a hard place, I think is is maybe the best descriptor of where you guys sit right now. It is. I think um, locally, that is where our local board of trustees is working to do everything within our power to to save every job and to ensure that um, um, that that all of our students have their needs met. Um, it it is uh, a challenging time. I would say the most challenging time um, this board has faced in a long number of years. That said, we are very committed to to high levels of communication with the public, with the ministry, and we will continue to advocate for our local students' needs. Alex, thanks as always for the time today. We'll stay in touch as this uh, story evolves over the next couple of weeks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Alex Johnstone, who, of course, is the chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. And and it's important that we go through that because I know that you're going to get spin from the government, from any government. That's what they do when they, they introduce policy. Uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, when the minister comes on a program like this, as she did last week, and say, don't worry about this, uh, we're going to cover the salaries of all those teachers that are going to get notices. Uh, you've just heard the math from the Hamilton Board of Education. And even with the, the idea of attrition and a few other things, the reality is there seem to be at least 37 teachers that are probably are not going to be able to find a position next year. And these are teachers that not applying for jobs, but 37 teachers that are currently working. They're going to be told, sorry, we have no place for you now because of what the ministry's doing. And that's only the Hamilton board. Multiply that by the number of boards around the province. And just keep in mind what Doug Ford said, that nobody would lose their job. There you go. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.